Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. And if you believe in the Songcraft mission, please consider supporting us by visiting patreon.com slash songcraftshow. Our guest on this episode of Songcraft is Roland Orzabal of Tears for Fears. Roland and Kurt Smith formed the band in Bath, England in 1981 and have gone on to sell 30 million albums worldwide. Their major breakthrough in the UK came in 1982 with the top five single Mad World and the subsequent platinum-selling album The Hurting. They gained major steam in the US with their sophomore album Songs from the Big Chair, which included the hit singles Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Shout, and Head Over Heels. Featured in the book 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die, Songs from the Big Chair reached number one and was certified five times platinum by the RIAA. Tears for Fears' follow-up single, Sowing the Seeds of Love, was another massive hit, but Kurt departed the group not long after. Following a couple of albums with Roland at the helm, the duo reunited for the Everybody Loves a Happy Ending album in 2004. Now, after a long wait of 17 years, Roland and Kurt have just released their seventh studio album, The Tipping Point, and are embarking on a major tour. Even as they bring us new music, their legacy is well-established as one of the most unique and influential British groups to emerge in the last few decades. Their songs have been covered or sampled by Gary Jules, Adam Lambert, Lord, Kanye West, Drake, and many others. And in 2021, the band was honored with the Outstanding Song Collection honor at the Ivor Novello Awards in London. Part 1 well, Scott, we like to have some fun here on Songcraft. I'm having a good time. Yeah, I like to think so. Mm-hmm. Um, we tend to start our episodes with these conversations where we talk about a little of this and a little of nothing. Um, <laughs> and a- apparently, sometimes our listeners take us maybe even a bit more seriously than we might have intended. Yeah, um, I think I know where this is going. We yeah. uh, we, we do get uh, listener mail, and we love to get listener mail. Love if it. if you um, want to contact us, you can go to songcraftshow.com, and all the way down at the bottom of our homepage, there is a contact form. You can send us a message, let us know what you think of the show. But uh, we did get one uh, recently that I thought was uh, was kind of fun. Um, the uh, we don't use people's last names when we read their mail here because we don't want to you know right. like put anybody on blast. But this is from a listener named Kevin. Uh, his last name rhymes with Macon. Uh, it, it is the same <laughs> as a breakfast. Uh, tr- no, yeah. uh, it is not Kevin Bacon. Uh, but this is a listener named uh, Kevin. And he says, uh, guys, just listen to the Todd Snyder podcast. Do you really think the moon landing was faked? Say it ain't so. <laughs> Songcraft brings a little truth and beauty into a mean old world. So I hope you were making a joke and I just missed it. Uh, listen, which... <laughs> I, I'm going to I'm going to immediately cut Kevin some slack. Right. I'm going to come right out and say we live in a world of conspiracies left and right and conspiracy <laughs> theories left and right. Right. And I guarantee you that every listener right now either knows someone that believes the moon landing was faked or maybe you believe the moon landing was faked yourself. It's not that out of the question. <laughs> for Kevin to ask us this question. <laughs> well, unfortunately, that's probably true. And I I this what what made me laugh so much about receiving this message is that I have no idea what he's referring to. Oh, yeah. Which well. <laughs> which <laughs> made me realize that it's a safe bet that you should not think we're serious about anything. Totally. We give so little thought 
to what comes out of our mouths before <laughs> it comes out of our mouths. That it, there really is, I'm surprised that we don't get more mail calling us on some things that we've said. I mean, by the way, guys, if you hear a statistic, good Lord, you, you, we just make all of that up. Yeah, 39.7% of statistics are literally made up on the spot. <laughs> That's not true. Our statistics are real. We we find actual, re- Scott's a crack researcher. But if we talk about something like the moon landing, the safe bet that we are just absolutely just blowing smoke and... Uh, I do, though, want to announce, uh, you know, we've talked about Patreon here before, and we offer different tiers uh, of Patreon sponsorship. Um, Starting today, we're going to add a new tier on Patreon for $75 a month. And if you join us as a patron at that level, you will get to have a meal with me, Paul, and Bigfoot at the (laughs) Illuminati headquarters, which is located in a basement deep below the Vatican. And uh, and that's a pretty cool perk. (laughs) I feel like Kevin just turned off. I feel like, <laughs> Kevin, I'm with you, dude. I I, under, I feel like I got to ask these questions all the time of people. But let me just assure you, we believe in the moon landing. <laughs> I believe in nothing else. <laughs> but I believe in the moon landing. I, um, I also believe it happened. But man, the moon looks pretty boring. Yeah, totally. We <laughs> might have been lied to about how exciting the moon was. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. But Kevin, <laughs> uh, don't worry, my friend. Uh, you can still trust us here. Uh, it, it, in a world where people don't know who to believe, you can believe Sankar. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, so I wanted to share some other, uh, some some stuff from the mailbag here, Paul. I don't always say mailbag when yeah. it's digital. Do we have a bag? It's, it's email. Yeah. yeah, I put I print all these out and I put them into my <laughs> email bag. Um So uh, a a listener named Pierre writes, he says, hi, guys, I wanted to thank you for putting together such a great show. Your interviews with the wide and interesting range of guests that you have each episode are fantastic. I would love to be part of your email list. Keep up the great work. And thanks again. So, Pierre, thank you, Pierre. We're putting you on the email list, my friend, per your request. Uh, Then uh, we have a listener named Doug. He says, "Uh, really love your show. Wondering if you would consider getting Tom Waits on at some point. Thanks for great stuff you are putting out there. Uh, Doug. Yes, we, we would consider, consider that. Yeah. Yes. So if anyone knows Tom Waits or Tom, if you're listening, Tom, would you consider coming <laughs> yeah. on Songcraft? We would love to have Tom Waits uh, yeah. on Songcraft. So yes, we would consider Tom Waits. Would Tom Waits consider us? Uh, let's hope that maybe one day he will, because that would be an epic yeah. uh, interview. So love that idea. Um, wanted to uh, share another couple here. This is one uh, we don't. People don't always lavish praise upon us. Uh, but this is from a listener. <laughs> not everyone's name. a fan. Not everyone's a fan. Yeah. And actually this, I think gives us an opportunity to clear up a potential misconception okay. about our show, because I've seen a couple comments on, on Apple podcasts uh, that are kind of similar to this, but a, a listener named John, uh, he writes, and the subject is the songwriting process. He says, I listened to the Smokey Robinson interview with all due respect. I'm just going to insert a comment here. Whenever anyone, whenever anyone says with all this due respect, you're about to get trashed a little bit. That's just, that's just, you know, the ways of humans. Yeah. Uh, so he says, with all due respect, no one asked about the songwriting process, mm. his way of developing a song. Maybe restrictions were put on you, but an opportunity was missed to gain insight into the actual process of writing a song. Still, it was a well-executed interview. Thank you for Honestly, listening. Smokey Robinson had wanted to talk about why he chose the hat he was wearing that day, I would give Smokey an hour on the hat. Well, and I would argue that we did, in fact, talk about the songwriting process a good bit. And I think that's what I want to address about what this show is all about, because the show is called Songcraft. And so for some people, they come to the show with this very strict 
idea that all we're going to talk about is the nuts and bolts of, well, then I came up with the right. A line and then the B line fell into place and we decided, does this song work with a two line bridge or a four line bridge? You know, people love the, the nitty gritty, the nuts and bolts of that stuff. And we love that stuff too. And sometimes we do talk with our guests about that. Um, but I would encourage our listeners, don't get too hung up that this show is called Songcraft. It's called Songcraft Spotlight on Songwriters. Well, we gave which, as much thought to the name which, as we give to anything else we say. <laughs> right, as we give to the moon landing, apparently. Uh, but the, the point is that this is a show where we interview songwriters. We talk about songwriting. We talk about songwriters. We let them tell their stories. We don't put parameters on our guests. Right. Um, we ask them questions, and we let them take us where they want to take us. And I think, actually, if you listen to that interview, he talks a bit about some of the stuff that was going on in his personal life. Life, and it, it might not be a, a how to write songs manual, but everything that we do here is ultimately about songs and the songwriting process. And sometimes that's nuts and bolts. Sometimes it's inspiration. Sometimes it's talk about influences. Sometimes it's talking about, you know, what's happened in people's lives that has shaped them. So uh, we don't want to give anyone the impression that this show is something that it's not. Yeah. Uh, so we do thank you for your comment, John. But I, I still stand by my statement that if Smokey wants to come back on and talk about ranch versus barbecue, I'm here for it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We'll talk about anything that, that anyone wants to say. And, and if you if you do contact us to complain about an interview, you might want to just check the spelling on the name of the <laughs> the uh, celebrity <laughs> guest that you're referring to. I'm uh, with all due respect. Right. I think Smokey would appreciate it. <laughs> Um, the last one I want to read, and, and this is uh, this is a real piece of, of listener mail. This is not an advertisement, but, you know, fair warning. We're going to roll right into an advertisement. Uh, but a guy named Steven contacted us. He said, first off, faithful listener, and I love every episode. I guess that includes wow. even the Smokey Robinson Jeez. one. Uh, secondly, thank you for introducing me to Pearl Snap. Because of them, a publishing company is currently pitching two of my songs to artists. So, uh, Paul, for wow. those folks who might not know what Steven is referring to, which means that you're new to Songcraft, yeah. tell the folks what Pearl Snap is. Pearl Snap Studios is the place that you can send a song you've written in its most basic form, whether it's an iPhone recording or some little voice memo that you've done, and they will turn it into a quality, pitchable recording. I, I'm going to go ahead and say it's probably already radio worthy by the time they're done with it. Um, but, I mean, seriously, I feel like we talk about it a lot. What could be more compelling than that testimonial right there? Yeah, and that is not something where we came on here and said, hey, co you know, contact us and, and tell us something about Pearl Snap. That's an unsolicited email from an actual listener of the show who has been very happy with Pearl Snap services. And maybe you're not even a person who's looking to pitch your songs to artists. Maybe you've just been writing some songs and you'd love to have a great quality recording just for your own use, just to play for your, your friends or your spouse or your kids or, or whoever. Um, you know, you don't have to have a particular agenda in mind. All you need to have is a song yeah. and some kind of vision of what you want that song to be and Justin and his team can take that thing and turn it into something that's truly magical I know we've already passed Valentine's Day but you know Think about next year. Think you got birthdays. There's like yeah. Christmas. There's all kind of reasons to get a song recorded. Yeah, you've got Earth Day. You've got Arbor Day. Yeah. You've got all you got to do is write the song and Smokey Robinson will tell you that's easy. Yeah. <laughs> So go to PearlSnapStudios.com, find out more about Justin and his team, and how you can get a great quality recording of one of your songs. Part 2 Once again, our guest on this episode is Roland Orzabal of Tears for Fears. Known for such classics as Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Shout, Head Over Heels, Mad World, and Sowing the Seeds of Love, the group has a brand new album, The Tipping Point, and is embarking on a major tour.
Roland, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We are really excited about this new Tears for Fears album called The Tipping Point. Um, first studio album for you guys since 2004. Um, and the opening track, uh, No Small Thing, um, is a song that you have said represents freedom. That's a song uh, written by you and Kurt. I think it might be the only one on the album, if I'm not mistaken, that's just written by the two of you alone. Um, and so the fact that that's kind of the the lead off track, it's a song that, that just the two of you guys wrote together. I'd love to hear more about what you mean about that song representing freedom for the two of you. Well, um, I have to sort of take you back to when we first started uh, making this record, um, maybe... Mm, seven or eight years ago and uh, there were two false starts and we had this idea that maybe we should go back to the hurting and try and make something that was synth based and um, stark so we did a a few tracks like that um, with um, Charlton Pettis, our guitarist, co-writer and co-producer. And around about the same time, and I could could be getting this wrong, it might have been before, we also started recording at Charlton's studio in Los Angeles, some more bombastic songs, kind of um, a little bit like Queen, you might say. And in fact, we are sort of, pet name for the new album was Tears for Fears, the musical. (laughs) So so that gives you an idea of exactly what we were trying to to do. These are two contrasting sort of styles, really, the more sort of over-the-top stuff that we did on um, Seeds of Love, the more um, emotional and sort of uh, what's personal songs which were on The Hurting. Our manager at the time, Gary Gersh, uh, came in and listened to what we had done in Charlton's studio. We had a lovely lunch meeting, um, Charlton's wife cooked. And um, afterwards, Gary said to Kurt and I, you're not going to get an album done with that guy in that studio. At the time he was, this is a long winded story, but I'll get to the point eventually. Um, at the time, he was listening to an artist called Son, S-O-H-N, who's this beautiful, um, at the time, very cutting-edge artist. And we did um, we worked with him for a little while. And we got something which was a bit like Son, really. And that, that was really the start of, a, of many years of working with um, modern hit songwriters and essentially Gary was saying to us that he didn't trust us to make a record that was the um, narrative really yeah and so 
Now, I, I, I'm pretty good at um, ad-libbing. I'm not very self-conscious. So if you put me in a room with um, a bunch of musicians, I will be shouting, screaming my head off, coming up with all these kind of melodies and lyrics. Um, and we ended up with an album. We fin kind of finished it around 2.16. We ended up with an album which was sort of almost 12 attempts at writing a, a modern-day hit single, hmm. which, of course, was fine. But two years later, that modern day hit single, it doesn't resemble what you were trying to do. Oh. <laughs> right, right. We, um, we, uh, our manager, in his wisdom, said to us, we were signed to Warner Brothers at the time in, in America, and he said to us, you're not, you, you know, this is not the right label for you. Um, we went to back to Universal, who have our back catalogue. And they came up with a plan. They took take two songs, put out a greatest hits record, and then put out the, the, the proper album proper after that. However, they put out the greatest hits record and didn't sign the album itself. Oh, geez. Very, very smart, very shrewd. So it was a bit of a management and lawyer fuck up, if mm. I can say that. Right. Um, we were left with this album and then lots of bad things happened. There were lots of things, you know, uh, my first wife passed away and I stopped working. I lost, you know, focus. Um, and we did a couple of big tours. Meanwhile, Kurt and I were sort of not happy with what we had. We didn't feel that the album was representative or, or, or on a par with our greatest work. But there were five tracks which we felt very strongly about. So in the beginning of 2020, I had a sort of um, um, crunch meeting with Kurt, a crisis meeting. Um, we were going to sack our manager finally. And we were going to decide whether we wanted to carry on and how we would carry on. And I eventually went round to Kurt's house in LA. We got together with two acoustic guitars and a little iPhone recorder. And... Kurt started playing this acoustic guitar riff. And from that, we built the track, uh, um, No Small Thing. Freedom is no small thing. And of course, in the song, the narrator is talking to his partner, his, his wife or his girlfriend, who wants him to settle down. And yet he's telling her that I will, I will. Um, but I've just got one more song to sing and one more story to tell. And uh -huh. the freedom that we were talking about it was not really nothing to do with um, it was pre pandemic, nothing to do with freedom from social distancing and social, you know, regulations and that kind of stuff. But it's the freedom that we felt we suddenly gave ourselves when we decided we didn't want to be with our manager anymore. When we, we decided that we were going to take things into our own hands, we were going to finish this record ourselves and build it into something with huge strength and depth. And that's what we did. I'm sure, you know, a, a lot of people have sort of tripped over themselves trying to decipher certain lyrical images over the years. Um, yeah. And you, you you write a lot of really evocative songs. Um, but when I'm listening to this new record, it's hard for me to listen to a song like Rivers of Mercy and not hear some parallels to the current world situation when you're talking about, you know, trouble in town, basically.
I'm curious if if I'm right by deciphering that, or uh, are, are there things that you look at in society around you and say, I, I have to write about that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, that song, I was with, I was with Charlton, and I was secretly trying to tart up a song called Long, Long, Long Time, which is also on the record. A song that I really, really liked, but I didn't like the mix and some of the production. So I was in with Charlton and he played me this backing track, which he'd done with our keyboard player, Doug Petty. So that was kind of a bit strange because Doug is an incredible keyboard player, but he's never offered us anything musically in the past. Right. And there's this gorgeous kind of peaceful, evocative, slightly reminiscent of Woman in Chains backing track. And all I took it away back to England. And it just um, inspired sort of images of the sea, of the river, redemptive waters, um, surrendering to something, surrendering to the great ocean, um, going with the flow kind of thing. Of course, at the same time as I was writing this, it was lockdown number one in Britain. We had the most incredible weather, Mediterranean weather. So we were imprisoned in our sort of three acre estate with tennis court and, <laughs> and outbuildings and recording studio. You know, it was hell. Um, <laughs> but um, you turn on the radio, uh, you turn on the TV, you go on to any news channel and they're all the, the rage in America and around the world, um, the riots, the BLM uh, protests. And for me, there was a, a massive dichotomy um, between this, our desire, our innate desire for peace um, and escape with the rage that was going on. So that's when I came up with the, the front. You know, the streets are always, uh, you know, streets are burning, there's trouble in the towns. Um, and we have, we use the sound of the riots right at the beginning of the song. Right. And then the, the song drifts into this, you know, incredible desire to be, you know, in a sense, take, take me to the river, drop me in the water. Hmm. kind of right. thing and then the middle eight sort of starts to refer it again refer back to the beginning but i love that song yeah i absolutely love it well you and uh kurt have certainly worked uh many years together and i want to go back to to the early days when you guys were just starting out um in a band called graduate uh in the uk uh recorded an album in 1980 released a single called elvis should play ska <laughs> very different uh than than the music that we would eventually come to know from you um but I'm curious when you guys had linked up and you were working together in, in that band, you know, it, it eventually fizzled and you started tears for fears together. Um, when you began tears for fears, was there a particular 
I don't want to say mission statement, but was there a, a particular direction or, or firm concept that you had as a writer and creator um, that in your mind would be, you know, a completely different route or, or different um, way of approaching the craft of songwriting and making music than you had done previously? Well, um, I've always written songs. I've written songs. Uh, my first song I wrote at the age of seven, and uh, it was a big hit on the council estates. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember I sang it to my parents and they didn't believe that I'd written it. It was so good. <laughs> no, they didn't believe I'd written it and they thought I just was singing something off the radio. So it's something I've done throughout my life. Graduate was kind of like, um, I mean, you know, we weren't very good at what we were doing. I mean, I, I, I was kind of, Prior to graduate, I was in this sort of duo, and we used to do Simon and Garfunkel covers, uh, and we used to play in a hairdresser's on a Saturday morning. Huh. That that was our gig, and so for me, writing songs was it was like trying to do anything similar to Paul Simon would have been enough for me. But you know that wasn't the we weren't going to get anywhere doing that. So I very quickly tried to assume the shape of a, of a, of a young mod pop star. Mm, right. And it, it was a, a sharp learning curve. And I, we were totally into um, two-tone era at the time, uh, Madness, the specials, uh, the beat, and um, Selector. But we, we were nowhere near as good. We didn't come from those really weren't our that wasn't our prime inspiration yeah and so graduate came crumbling down very quickly after a two-week tour in germany where kurt and i actually had to do some work instead of um, gazing at our navels <laughs> um, we had to do, lug our own equipment and and both of, both of us being sensitive um types uh, missed home and sort of dreamt about being a studio outfit of course this coincided with um the birth of the synthesizer the birth um the birth of electronica you know people like gary newman depeche mode um soft cell orchestral maneuvers in the dark all of a sudden you could be a duo with a tape yeah. machine and a synthesizer hmm. and we, we, we just we were young enough to completely um, embrace the trend and we quickly went from being very bad proto mod power pop outfit to being on you know to being close to the cutting edge of synthesizer music hmm. at the same time I guess the song that sort of opened things up to me in terms of being able to express my emotions in music was um, probably um, Love Will Tear Us Apart by Joy Division. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and there was a lot of um, darker music um, out at the time, The Cure, uh, Echo and the Bunnymen. Um, so, you know, we, we grew our hair, got our hair cuts in crazy ways, Kurt with his plaits. And um, <laughs> we also, at the same time, the thing that separated us from the rest of the guys in graduate was our belief and our embracing of Arthur Yanov, the Californian psychologist, 
his um, theory, primal theory, uh, his books, The Primal Scream, Prisoners of Pain, Primal Man, um, we were not very happy with ourselves, I think. We, we identified with each other coming from broken homes and um, council estates in Britain. So our, our, our initial thing with Tears for Fears really was to sort of get money to go and have primal therapy, which we believe to be the cure-all for the whole world. Hmm. Huh. It's a bit like the vaccine now. If everyone had primal therapy, the whole world would be absolutely fine. Right. You know, so that's... I started writing songs. Virtually every song was um, a riff on something that, that Arfi Yanov had written in his book. Even the song, the, the line, the lyric, line of lyric in Mad World, the dreams in which I'm dying are the best I've ever had. That's not actually pro-suicide. That's because Arfi Yanov wrote that um, our most nightmarish, heaviest dreams are the ones that sort of um, get rid of the most psychic energy. That's mm. all it is. So that's that's and songs on um, like ideas as opiates was a chapter in one of um, ideas as opiates from the hurting is one a chapter in one of uh, Yanov's books. Huh. Well, I mean that that lends all of a sudden a lot of uh, just sheds a lot of light on shout, let it all out. Mm -hmm. Shout, shout. There you go. So chat, 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 let it all out. That works on again on two levels because that was the kind of um, uh, a, a kind of um, a pop reference to Arthur Yanov, but it also was about protest as well. Because <laughs> wow. again, you're sort of we are, we moved from being uh, this sort of personal sort of you know writing intimate songs through you know the journey to the seeds of love where we're, we're really i mean you know that's i read marxism for dummies i think and so <laughs> that was um that, that we became more political yeah you know, you know it's it's interesting to me when you talk about these sort of you know philosophical concepts and the things that, that you're reading and and how they kind of influence your lyrics yeah. oftentimes you would hear really lyric driven music and and then production is kind of a backdrop Yep. And I've never felt that way about your music. I mean, you, you listen right the way through songs from the big chair and, and production and, and the sonic landscape of the music is as much a, of an actor on the stage as anything going on in the song. And so I'm curious about how that, how that works itself out in process. Um, you know, do you tend to, you know, this kind of sounds like a pedestrian question, but do you tend to start with a lyrical concept and then you know the sound you want to go for or are you guys really enveloped in those sounds and then you're like i know what this is going to draw from that i've been reading well both it works it works both ways so for instance uh give an example with shout happened because i programmed a specific sound on the prophet five which the bass notes were a drone and then the top notes were percussive dee, 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 dee. yeah mm. so yeah. that's all i had three notes on the bass and then that percussive riff um mad world was written on an acoustic guitar now i didn't have the confidence um i didn't sing it very well sounded no good 
I also played it in this kind of um, sub Duran Duran rhythm on the acoustic guitar. It came from girls, uh, girls on film. Hmm. Um, so I would have that that song would have been rejected if I hadn't arranged it on on a synthesizer and the drum machine. So it they they work together, and sometimes you don't understand the true nature, the true soul of the song. And with Mad World, I mean, it was a, a huge hit for us and that, that, put, that got the ball rolling. But I wouldn't say we truly understood what that song was about until Gary Jules sang it hmm. you know, on Donnie Darko. And I find it kind of funny, I find it kind of sad The dreams in which I'm dying are the best I've ever had find it hard to tell you, I find it hard to take When people run in circles, it's a very, very mad world Mad world You know, a song works on... A record is, a, is not the same thing as a song. So we we managed to take care of, hopefully, as best as we could anyway, um, every level from the lyrics, the melody, and then the rhythm be below it, and all the orchestration. It's interesting when I look at, um, obviously in the US, it was really songs from the big chair um, that was the, the real breakthrough, but you guys had, had broken through with the hurting in the UK and, and you had, you know, mad world, which you're talking about and change and, and pale shelter and these songs that were top five singles in the UK. And for us in the U S it was kind of going back to that album after, um, songs from the big chair came out. Cause then we're like, Oh, who are these guys? And, and let's find out more about them. One thing that strikes me is that The Hurting, I believe you're the sole writer um, of all the songs on that record. Uh, and then when we get to songs from the big chair, you see a lot more um, collaborative writing. I mean, there's still, you know, I believe and broken are songs that you wrote solo, but then you see people like, you know, Ian Stanley coming in and, and more of a collaborative process on the creation of the songs. I'd love to hear a bit about for you as a writer, how writing solo versus how writing collaboratively might be a bit of a different process or maybe in some ways the same process for you. But how do you experience that as two different ways of approaching the craft? Well, I mean, left to my own devices, you know, on my own, um, I would write the songs. And um, when it came to Big Chair, we struggled with Mother's Talk. Um, we'd done sort of two different versions. Everyone was frustrated um, because we're kind of moving away from the hurting, trying to look for a new direction. And I was given a month to go away and write, which was a joy. Hmm. Um, so I had this Prophet 5 and a, a Lin drum machine, an acoustic guitar. And in four weeks, I came up with quite a few songs. And everybody wants to rule the world, shout, uh, I believe. And so what happened was I took them into the studio. So with shout, 
there was no verse. Hmm. Yeah. With everybody wants to rule the world, there was no middle eight. There was no post middle eight or pre middle eight or motif or that. There was no intro. So although I've written the the lyrics and the melody, um, in terms of you know Ian and Chris, um, if they came up with chords for the middle eight, they got songwriting credits. Hmm. Um, uh, but it's not just that, because with shout, I would say you when you are, uh, ask and refer to you know arrangements, production, and how much of that is important to the song. Well, I mean, listen to shout. What would shout be without that flute sample, without mm. the crazy heavy Zeppelin rhythm, which was based on the rhythm I brought in, but was way, way heavier and yeah. far more, you know, powerful. Um, so Ian and Chris really arranged shout tremendously, which gave rise to the verse. So at that point in time, it is a collaborative effort. You, you didn't, I didn't finish the song. I didn't have a, the, all the lyrics, all the, um, the, the verse melody before I went into the studio. No, not at all. You know, uh, being around musicians, you'll be around somebody and they're like, oh, a drummer, can you play the Purdy Shuffle? Or, yep. you know, somebody will kind of reference the Bo Diddley beat. Yep. And I've, I've heard a lot of people talk about the everybody wants to rule the world beat. guys kind of almost invented this thing where it's like that you know i don't know if it's 12 8 i don't know what's going on but it's like in 4 4 and there's kind of like a triplet thing going on across the top on the high we didn't we um, didn't invent it though this is the thing i can tell you exactly where i got it please yeah so there was a simple mind song called waterfront and the bass went ding 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 yeah so there's that there was a song called by a band called lynx L-Y-N-X, called Throwing Away the Key. And on the hi-hat went... Okay? So you put the two together, and you have Everybody Wants to Rule the World beat. It's simple. It's all stolen. Wow. You know... I've read that an early draft of that song that the hook was everybody wants to go to war. And I'm curious if that's correct and, and how it kind of, you know, evolved. Well, exactly. Um, everybody wants to go to war. That's all I could think of because it was, <laughs> it was at the time um, during the eighties where we were still in the cold war, where the threat then um, was not coronavirus, but um, nuclear, nuclear war. Um, so the, yeah, and you had songs like, um, you know, Frankie Goes to Hollywood brought out uh, you know, the cover of um, War, What Is It Good For? Right. Um, things like that. And, uh, yeah, so everybody wants to go to the war. But that's, it's, a horrible, it's a horrible title. <laughs> it really is. And I don't think it would have done anything. 
if you know maybe it would have i don't know i don't think people would be singing it now on uh, britain's got talent or america's got talent and, <laughs> you know like they do every season um yeah you know so uh, and then i twisted it into everybody wants to rule the world which is along the same lines isn't it but it's it's, it's way better yeah it's interesting that that adage of you know, good is the enemy of great that, you know, had it stayed, everybody wants to go to war. I think it would have been a perfectly fine album track, but it's amazing how just shifting a couple of words can take something from a good song to a, a special song and being, having that, whether it's an eye or whether it's part of the craft or whether it's just instinctual as a writer, yep. having the ability to sort of recognize, Oh, I just wrote something good, mm-hmm. but I can do something better. I, I can make this uh, special in a way that it's not now with, with even maybe just a very small tweak. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, I was reading yesterday about um, Paul McCartney writing yesterday <laughs> and, uh, you know, starting off with scrambled eggs. And of yeah. course, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> come on. Um, and that would have been great for a breakfast advert, a breakfast cereal, advert, <laughs> or an egg advert. <laughs> uh, I mean, he could have made millions, but um, <laughs> as it, yeah, it's just those tweaks. But as a writer, that's your job, isn't it? You're, you're trying to f- make a form and a structure which cannot be pulled apart. It's got to have a solidity, a symmetry to it. And that, that, that can be just the tweak of a few words. You know, I often like to think about sort of the relationships between lines, how sometimes you you can say something that's really esoteric and and comes across strange, but if you pair it with another line that comes across and is digestible, then then you you can create something kind of powerful. And, you know, you have, there's so many moments in your lyrics where I stop and I go, what, Moses on a motorbike? What in the world is going on there? (laughs) Um, And and I even, I look at, at Head Over Heels and it's like these lines about, you know, you keep your distance via the system of touch and general persuasion. And, and I'm, I'm sitting there thinking about that line. And then you sort of buy me the freedom to think about it by just saying, hey, don't break my heart. Don't throw it away. That's an easily digestible line. Is that something that you really try for, that balance between, look, I, I want you to understand that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create some demanding lyrics for you to, to dig into, but I'm also writing a pop song. Yeah, that's, that's um, I'm not sure why I do that, to be honest with you. I think I struggle probably in, in everyday life, and I, I could probably ask my wife about this, um, <laughs> to struggle to say the most obvious things um, because I have a tendency to be obtuse and obscure. Even in when I talk to someone and meet them for the first time, I, I'll, I'll say something which doesn't quite make sense to see if they rise to the challenge, you know? <laughs> to see if they too enjoy cryptic <laughs> languages. You know, so I with with something like Head Over Heels, yeah, I mean that was a struggle, a real struggle, because I kind of knew there was something there, but I couldn't get the lyric. Uh, couldn't get the lyric without going 
off piste and I think uh, helped with that one uh, especially helped me a lot. You know, that uh, song from the Big Chair record came out, I believe, around 1985. Um, and it wasn't until 1989 that we got the follow-up Seeds of Love with the great single Sowing the Seeds of Love and mm-hmm. Woman in Chains. Well, I know the the previous two albums yeah. I mean, especially the first album you you have the freedom to to write kind of whatever you want there's no expectations by the time you finish the cycle of recording releasing having hits touring off the second album now you are very much uh in the public eye you are very much you know you're well known you've become you've become pop stars and now you have to write another record so you have expectations about what maybe that record, what the fans might want it to sound like. You have probably a lot more demands on your time because you're now, you know, balancing sort of being a public figure and, and all the things that come along with that, that are, are different than, you know, a couple guys writing a record, hoping to make it. I'm curious in what way just the success impacted you in terms of your approach to songwriting. And did it put, uh, pressure on you or did it liberate you in terms of feeling like you'd bought more credibility to do whatever you want? How did you kind of deal with that shift in public perception? Uh, okay. How can I explain? Um, I think there probably are where there's two sides to Kurt and two sides to me. And we, I don't think we came from that generation. Well, I know we didn't come from that generation post-war where those guys like McCartney and and Mick Jagger, it was, you know, they embraced um, pop music or blues music and became these humongous stars Um, uh, and and, and seemed to relish it. Uh, It seemed to be like an unquestioning path, unquestioned path. Kurt and I have, both of us, have a kind of hermit um, instinct. <laughs> so when you, uh, you've spent eight months around the world being screamed at uh, and going on TV and being goofy and <laughs> being extrovert and looking like you're having fun and uh, actually making money as well, which we kind of, didn't even pay attention to this the hermit instinct takes over and you want to go away and you want to claim some of your life back you want it back so I didn't feel it under any pressure to do anything that was the point at which after all those years I started primal therapy in uh, right. in London because this is sort of the weird thing is because when Kurt and I started Primal therapy was only available in Los Angeles and New York and Paris. But as we, as we became successful 
um, it, a couple, some breakaway therapists formed in London. One of them actually got in touch with me, which is a shock. By, by, huh. by the time, I, by the way, I forgot to mention that Arthur Yanov also got in touch with us to make a musical. <laughs> but that's another huh. story for another time. Um, <laughs> wow. So I moved to London and started therapy. So it was really primal therapy that changed my um, songwriting approach. Uh, I had a lot more things to, to, to sing about. Um, and also I started getting into, becoming a bit more politically aware, like, as I said, Marxism for dummies. I started reading about the history of the common man and things like that. So I wasn't really, I wasn't thinking about, we need another hit. That wasn't really my, I mean, if I'd been a careerist, you know, and if we'd had very strong management, um, they would have said, come on, guys, you just sold 8 million albums. Put out another one. You're going to sell four <laughs> at least, no matter what it's like. But right. we, we, we didn't think like that. For me, it's always been, there's been a spiritual journey to everything, which is as important, no, more important than the product. Yeah, the product is just the icing on the cake. Yeah. Mm. So I... Also, the music music's had changed. There was a brief period where soul music kind of became popular with bands like Simply Red, Wet, Wet, Wet. Um, there was the, a, a big change in the music scene in, in Britain with um, this was the Stock Aitken and Waterman sort of churning out sort of um, disco hits. And I, and I stopped listening to Radio 1, I'll be honest with you. Right. And so I started listening to, you know, going back to Steely Dan and Little Feet, um, Pink Floyd. So, I, you know, I wasn't really concerned about writing hits in any way. You know, uh, the the primal therapy piece keeps sort of coming up. And and now I'm thinking, oh, I, I might be able to find some of that in, in a lyric here and a lyric there. You know, um, I was even just looking at, at Break It Down Again, Th you know, looking at lines that say, no revolution, maybe someone somewhere else could show you something new about you and your inner song, mm -hmm. um, which I... I find that a really interesting lyric in light of what you've kind of been saying. Um, I, I'm I'm curious, uh, would someone like myself be overreaching to find elements of, of primal therapy in, in a lot of these songs? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Easy yes or no yeah, question. Some, sometimes, sometimes, let's be honest, sometimes you just need a bloody lyric. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. That's great. Fair enough. Because I was about to do it again with, you know, love is God's mistake. Uh, and, you know, comparing that to John Lennon saying, you know, God is a concept by which we measure our pain. But I, but I won't do that if it's too far. Well, yeah, but you can also, you can always, like, um, he said, God should not play dice. You know, that's Einstein, isn't it? Right. <laughs> so you're not overreaching with Einstein in quantum physics. You know, I mean, I was actually <laughs> approached by um, a phys physics uh, lecturer. Um, to provide quotes for his book because he was doing it on the impact of quantum mechanics in popular culture. So you know, that, that has come up. I also wrote another song called Schrodinger's Cat. Yeah, so that I, I put a lot of things in, you know, anything I'm, uh, anything I'm reading, you know. Well, that, that actually raises a question that I was thinking about as I was kind of listening through sort of the, the breadth of your material because there is, I, I sometimes refer to certain songs as a demanding listen. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, you're not just throwing something out there, you know, just warm milk for the listener to drink, but say, hey, this, this is going to require something of you. And I've always looked at that as a listener, 
as a show of respect for the audience. Yeah. Look, I think you can handle this concept. I think you can look this up. Um, and I see a lot of that in your music where it, I, I want to go look up, well, who, whose name is that? Yeah. Who is he referencing here? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not alone in this. I mean, if you think of uh, the amount of references that are actually in the Beatles, you know, hmm. from, from Edward Lear, you know, through to I, I, God knows, God knows who. So yeah. it, it, it's, I, I just think that, you know, that there are, I mean, I think a lot of people are, who love, love that kind of stuff. They love the cryptic stuff. They, they're intelligent listeners. There's, there's millions of them out there. Thank God. You know, <laughs> right. There really are. And I, I, I also think that, you know, I am a very, I'm a very curious person. I, before I die, I want to find out what the meaning of life is. And I want to share that with everyone. Um, <laughs> so I'm reading my ass off, you know, <laughs> reading my ass off to try, try and find out what the hell is going on. And, and then just <laughs> distill it into a, a song and, you know, and, and hopefully get other people to sort of think, aha, yeah. Well, Paul mentioned Break It Down Again. That was from the Elemental album uh, in period there in the early 90s um when kurt had left the group and you were you know that that elemental record and raul and the kings of spain record were basically i i would say kind of your your vision it's you are essentially tears for fears at that point but then you did a, a solo album your only solo album to date mm-hmm. uh tomcat screaming outside in in 2001 i'm curious for you as an artist who has something to say um, when you essentially had 100% control over Tears for Fears, what was it that made you feel like, hey, I want to put out an album under my name rather than under this band name? Well, lots of things. Uh, let me start at the beginning. Um, when Kurt and I decided to go our separate ways, I think what probably would have happened is I would have done a solo record. He would have done a solo record. Maybe I would have done two solo records. And we probably would have ended up doing another record because of commercial pressure together. Huh. And but what what happened was um, when I signed because because I was the goose that laid the golden eggs, so to speak. The record company wanted me to take the name, and I that was not my idea. Hmm. Uh, I wasn't thinking about that. In fact, I was going to call my band Raoul and the Kings of Spain. Uh, huh. So there, there was a, a, a kind of financial problem between Kurt and I. And in a sense, he sort of sold me the name. Yeah. Hmm. Right. And the record company at the time um, made it financially incredibly, uh, what's the word? very viable for me to take the name and carry on Hmm. now of course i mean there's two ways of looking at this i mean you know without a doubt in my mind 
Um, Tears of Fears is me and Kurt. But there's a hell of a lot of people who know the name Tears for Fears and don't know who, who anyone is, you know? Right. Um, so I think Elemental, I kind of I got away with it, you know? Um, I love the record. And I think that people didn't, uh, some people didn't bat an eyelid. Some people thought it was a bit strange, um, which is fair enough. I think both of those uh, are valid, valuable sort of um, perspectives. But yeah, I mean, right. what happened at the time, this guy, um, who had, who'd actually been in the Big Chair tour band um, called Alan Griffiths approached me just at the time I was splitting with Kurt and said, you fancy doing some writing together? Now, I'd re never really, although I'd co collaborated with people, I'd never sat down in a room to start a song with someone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Al is, was, he's no longer with us, unfortunately, um, an incredible musician. Uh, he brought his computers up and we started um, j jamming, ad-libbing. And we would spend five days a week together. Um, he would come up and stay in London. We'd sync up our computers he, and we'd just make a noise. Um, mm. But out of that, I used to listen to the DATS, you know, the G digital audio tapes, back of the jams on the weekend. And I used to structure them into songs like Break It Down Again was a, like a 20 minute jam with all those sections was in it. We're in it. Mm. Yeah. So we were off onto a different thing. By that time, hip hop was uh, was was the um, flavor du jour. And so if you look at Elemental, most of the 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 rhythms on Elemental are hip hop rhythms. You guys ended up coming back together in 2004 for the Everybody Loves a Happy Ending album, and that brought you guys back to the charts. But then it was a long period of time between then and this new album. Yeah. Um, what, what I'm actually going to ask you about is not necessarily about the, t the time in between the albums, mm -hmm. but it's about the consistency of what sort of makes a Tears for Fears song. Um, again, and listening to the breadth of your material... I feel like there's a connective thread, even through the songs that have more organic elements or the ones that are more synth-driven, and it's more than just your voice. It's more than just the lyric. And I'm wondering if this is something that you feel like you have a handle on, like when, when you're coming into a record like the new record, where there is some standard where you go, this feels good, but it doesn't feel like a Tears for Fears song. It doesn't feel like it has the DNA of it. Is there any way for you to verbalize what you think that DNA is? Well, the way Kurt explains it is that Nowadays, um, it's whatever we agree on, huh. because I would say that there are songs that um, we've come up with in the past seven or eight years, which I would be happy to share with the world, but he wouldn't um, because they are not what he would say tears for fears. So I don't really know what that is. I guess that... Deep down, or ideally, if it is something we feel strongly about and we manage to, to connect that meaning, that those deep feelings with um, a beautiful lyric, a melody, and a, and a pretty intelligent arrangement and production, then that is, is Tears for Fears. Without a question, the album we're now, we're now selling um, compared to the album 
that we kind of finished in 2016, there's no question about it. The, the, the personality of this finished record is huge and the balance of personalities between my singing and Kurt's singing is far more representative of our greatest work. It's curious to me, you, you referenced earlier the um, idea that you guys were kind of chasing the, the hit song type of groove at the moment and a couple years would pass and you would abandon, you know, you'd say, well, this doesn't really make sense anymore. And, you know, I've read you talking about management kind of pushing, um, bringing in uh, these different collaborators that ultimately it just didn't stick. Um, But one of the ones who did stick was Sasha Skarbek, Mm -hmm. who's a hugely successful pop writer. And I listened to a song on the new album, um, like My Demons. Talk a bit about working with uh, Sasha and and what that brought to the table in terms of bringing out different sides of your own creative impulses. Well, I think Sasha, um, like Charlton Pettis, um, Sasha was a great modulator. He got Kurt and he got me. Um, so he's also an, he's an incredible keyboard player, piano player. He can do yeah. anything. I mean, you just listen to him play jazz and Oh, it's just, it's just amazing. Um, he is also one of these guys that he's English. So we found ourselves in London, having spent a lot of time in America and LA. So right. there's that kind of essential British honesty. There's that kind of, this, this isn't really important, is it? You know, kind of quality. Huh. Um, so he would... And he was, um, there's another guy called Flo Reuter as a German um, synth programmer who comes up with these crazy, crazy sounds. And um, you, uh, t- for the life of me, I don't know how he does it. Um, so with, with my demons, for instance, that was literally, they played it to us pretty much the way it is now, um, give or take the middle eight. And the first thing I came up with, my demons don't get, don't get out that much. Uh, straight away, uh, took it home, worked on the, it was easy, it was just easy. Uh, literally done in a week. Um, took about three more years for me to change the first line of lyric and huh. uh, to empty out the production of sort of high annoying top end information but um, essentially what you're hearing was there that very first day when we walked into the studio. Wow. You know, one thing we haven't mentioned in this conversation is Roland the novelist. And uh, in 2014, you published your first novel. And I would think, for me, writing a book versus writing a song, it'd be like saying, well, I know how to drive, but I know how to drive in America. And all of a sudden, if I have to drive in England, driving is something completely different. And to write, you know, to write a three or four minute pop song versus writing a novel are two distinctly different sides of a 
slightly similar coin. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious uh, for you how those two uh, disciplines coexist in your brain. Did they contribute at all to one another, songwriting and novel writing? And um, how did it feel to kind of enter something as kind of a new kid? Well, that, that's a very, very good question. Um, the A song you can listen to in for however long the song is, three and a half minutes. You can't read a novel in three and a half minutes. You can read some <laughs> novels in a day, okay? Um, I grew up listening to uh, pop songs. So verse, chorus, verse, chorus, middle eight, chorus. That's it. You understand the structure fundamentally. The problem with novels is the structure is not always obvious. Hmm. In fact, most of the time it isn't. So I, <laughs> I actually wrote, a, started another book, which I'm still working on. So this is 16 years now. Hmm. Um, and I really had to learn to write. I, um, I was beaten up by editors and the pain you feel, (coughs) excuse me, as a novice writer um, is far exceeds any criticism I've ever had Hmm. uh, from a record company or a producer, music producer. Wow. The pain you feel when you submit something that you've spent years on only to hear that it's no good (laughs) is, is excruciating. So I'd been working on something for seven years beaten up by editors and it was going nowhere i wasn't getting any traction on it at the same time as this was going on i was asked um by a a, a, a approached by a tv program a tv show in 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 england uh, called pop star to opera star i'd kind of missed uh, series one and they asked me if i'd go along to audition for series two and i'm thinking whoa this is crazy I used to sing opera when I was a kid. It's one of the things I did. I had voice lessons. I sang opera. I sang classical. Um, I I performed in a musical at the Theatre Royal in Bath when I was 18 years old. I was kind of headhunted and then headhunted to appear in the Bath Operatic and Dramatic Society and then headhunted by an opera coach. And so I thought, well, this this is fate. This is destiny. And so I went along. And I did the audition and I practiced and I practiced and I practiced and I nailed it. I nailed it. Mm. I sounded like an opera singer. Now, what what then happened was I started to question whether I should be doing it, whether it wasn't going to be a car crash. Yeah. (laughs) And so I, I started to fictionalize the whole thing. It's almost like a, a mental process to save me from humiliation. Wow. So I started writing this novel about this. Uh, so I assumed an alter ego, a guy called Solomon Capri, who's a retired 80s pop star. And he, his um, marriage is, is not going very well. And he, he married a fan, okay, who's mm-hmm. no longer a fan because he's blubbery and you know, middle-aged and no longer successful. And so he thinks, he thinks that I'm going to go off and I'm going to become a star again and I'm going to do it this time through opera. So I fictionalized the whole thing. That, that book, the first draft, took less than six months and I wasn't even writing it every day. I was writing it on the road 
I sent it off to one of the editors that kept beating me up. And he said, oh, my God, this is your voice. And I was like, what, really? And he, he pretty much told me how to finish it. Um, and then it, it didn't take very long. Wow. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> Uh, the Tipping Point, um, that's a song that you wrote with uh, Charlton Pettis, a name that you've mentioned a couple times as we've been talking about some of these uh, songs. song i hear a little bit of echoes of everybody wants to rule the world in there in terms of the rhythm Mm -hmm. uh, but it's also kind of moves us to a different you know it's got a nice throwback but moves us to a different point to who tears for fears is today um and i'd love to just hear a bit more about that song and and its creation and how that came together well I, i think charlton was uh very upset by the fact that we were going around working with all these so called hit songwriters when he fundamentally understood um, what Tears for Fears music was was about. He'd been in the band. He'd worked with us for, for years. And so he, he did what every other songwriter tried to do. He said, I'm going to steal an element of one song, put it with an element of another song, and then present it to um, Kurt and Roland and see what they think. So the first thing he did was he sent me this unbelievable haunting motif which is the front of the the song and it had the everybody wants to rule the world shuffle not 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 fully developed with all the fills which i did later which was easy to do and um it was a, an incredibly what i would call it a haunting emotional backing track um and again, again it, it it didn't take me very long i mean it was came at a period where my first wife was was very, very ill. And um, I was basically became a carer, looking after her and watching this incredible feisty woman become a ghost of her former self. So that's that all went into the lyric. The hmm. the narrator is in a hospital ward watching this person and wondering at what point are they going to cross from life into death. Not a very happy subject, Hmm. but it's a question of when do you let someone go? Will you ever know when it's the tipping point? So do you grieve them before they go? Do you grieve them after they go? Are they actually Hmm. still around in some form? But they, whatever you believe beliefs are, they are certainly there in your memory and everyone else's memory. So the whole thing yeah. becomes blurred. The gap, the 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 tilt between life and death is a blurred point. Wow, wow. Well, it's a very cool song. Uh, we've gotten a chance to to hear a, a bit of a sneak peek at the album, which is really great. It's amazing to have uh, some new Tears for Fears music after all these years. So, uh, Roland, we just want to thank you for uh, spending a bit of time with us today and sharing some of your insights. This has really been a pleasure. Great. Thank you very much, guys.
Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. And of course, nothing beats a personal recommendation. Perhaps take a moment right now to text or email one friend who you think would appreciate what we do and send them a link to our show, letting them know how much you enjoy it. As a reminder, you can sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and find out how to help support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can follow us on social media by searching for Songcraft Conversations on Instagram and Songcraft Show on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.